0: And I'm in conversation today with Karen Stewart. Karen is a mental health psychosocial support specialist and licensed clinical social worker with over 30 years working in a wide variety of mental health settings. Ten of those years have been working with Doctors Without Borders throughout Asia and Africa. She has a private practice offering speaking, consulting, and training on mental health and staff welfare issues and providing clinical supervision. Welcome to the podcast, Karen.
1: Thank you for inviting me, Sharon. I'm very happy to be here.
0: It's nice to be with you again. Thank you for being here. Indeed. And the conversation we're going to have is part of a mental health series I'm hosting here in the Meta Hour, as it feels like this is an incredibly important time to have conversations on this topic. And, you know, I like you and teaching in Zoom I'm reading those chats and the comments people are putting in and um it's such an intense time and uh I'm also very curious about the kind of the welfare and the well-being of those in the helping professions such as yourself so maybe we can start with a little background on how you came to this kind of work
1: well, it's interesting. My, my interest in mental health and trauma actually came out of my own personal journey, which I think is true for many, including yourself, Sharon, as mm-hmm. far as meditation, mm-hmm. right? But yeah, definitely, it, when you look at the mental health field, um, a lot of people are survivors of trauma themselves. So as a kid, I used drugs and alcohol to cope with quite a stressful childhood. And by probably the age of 16, I was de- dealing with serious addiction. And I actually had tried to take my life several times as a teenager and young adult. So my attempts to become clean and sober, I eventually was successful. I actually just celebrated 31 years, which is very fun. That's
0: fantastic.
1: Yeah. And it, it took me to pursue a bachelor's degree in human services. And it took me 11 years to get that. But I did. And I started in the mental health field uh, working as a drug and alcohol counselor. And this was also at the height of the HIV and AIDS epidemic. So I was dealing with a tremendous amount of grief and loss in my community. And then from there, I worked in uh, psychiatric emergency and inpatient and more so with people dealing with uh, severe and persistent mental illness. The shift to go to Doctors Without Borders actually followed... My sister, my only sibling, took her life in 2002. So that just, it took me out, yeah, for a couple years. And then when I kind of came through that, I was like, okay, am I doing everything I want to be doing? And I was like, no, I want to go work in the International Humanitarian Aid work. So that's what I did. At that point, I had probably 15 plus years in mental health in the U.S., and I wanted to take, I had gotten a master's degree by then in social work, became a licensed clinical social worker, and in 2004 began working full-time with Doctors Without Borders as a mental health officer.
0: Well, it can certainly resonate with your your life experience. Let's uh, just for a few moments take apart the word trauma because it's a word that is so used and, and never used to be used. Um, and i'm I'm just curious, you know a lot of people associate trauma with what I guess is clinically called classically called now a uh, shock trauma, you know um car crash, plane crash, a uh, sudden loss, and it's almost the suddenness of it that characterizes that image of trauma. People also talk about kind of the chronic trauma of grinding poverty and um the long-term effects Um, people talk about intergenerational trauma these days or inherited trauma. And uh, for caregivers, we talk about vicarious trauma. And so uh, you don't have to, you know, map it all out, but if you could just give us like a sense of different ways that word might appear.
1: Well, you're right. (laughs) It is everywhere at this point. Um, You know, the word trauma, it it honestly, it just means a response to a deeply disturbing event, right? That overwhelmed the individual's either ability to cope or function. So, and it can be acute, we would call acute trauma, like just a single stressful event that happened. Or we could have chronic trauma, which is more prolonged exposure to highly stressful events. So that would be The person living in a domestic violence situation, child abuse, COVID 19, definitely classified as a chronic trauma. Mm -hmm. And then we have complex trauma, which is actually multiple traumatic events on top of each other, which again, we have now. I'm in California. So I think about the person who's impacted by the fires that we had here and COVID 19 and perhaps job loss, right? So then you have a complex trauma. I think where it gets a little bit lost, people kind of jump from trauma to PTSD or post-traumatic um stress disorder. And it's it's not always, right? Those are diagnosable conditions that sometimes follow exposure to trauma, but not always.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what do you think about the term post-traumatic growth?
1: I actually, I appreciate post-traumatic growth. That has been my experience. I Even as I was saying in my introduction, it got me to go work, right? Mm-hmm, in international mm-hmm. aid following the death of my sister. Mm-hmm. So many times, even my own um, addiction, my own drug and alcohol addiction prompted me like really suffering to move forward and do more and better things. So I think there is something there. Um Yeah. That definitely post-traumatic growth is a is a real thing.
0: <laughs> I was just thinking it's such a fine needle to thread. You know, the um uh quotation I use from Roshi Joan Halifax um in two of my last books, If Truth Be Told, uh <laughs> is uh something that was meaningful for me, where she said something like. Basically, don't force yourself to think of the traumas of your life as a gift. They're givens.
1: Yes. You know,
0: and the powerful word in there is force. It's like we get this idea that, you know, I need to emerge better than ever or, or whatever. And it's just like another perfectionistic standard.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And if I look back, like the year following my sister's death, I was bottomed out. I mean, I personally was suicidal myself. I I dropped easily 50 pounds. I mean, I was an absolute mess. So the last thing on my mind was growing or seeing <laughs> any kind of silver lining out of that,
0: you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's also interesting, you know, um, just taking like a stress model where there would be a real dynamic engaged. You know, there's the stressor, the circumstance, the pressure. The incident kind of coming at us or arising within us. And then there's the resource with which it's met. You know, do we feel any energy? Do we feel any inspiration to meet it in a different way? How kind are we toward ourselves in what we're going through? What sense of resource do we have? Do we feel completely depleted? Uh, What amount of community do we feel? Or do we feel completely isolated? And all of those factors affect it seems so clearly the ways that we experience stress and, and to sort of appreciate that without that also becoming a kind of perfectionistic standard, you know, like I'm not meeting this very well or whatever.
1: Exactly. Exactly.
0: So tell me about um, your work in uh, really intense places, you know, war zones and so on. Um, you've worked in such a variety of extremely unstable and even dangerous environments, and I'm curious how you approach working with individuals with a lot of situational trauma uh and how you begin to talk about balance and healing.
1: You know, I think one of the things that I see across the board is that people one of the main problems they don't recognize. The stress or trauma symptoms in themselves. So, like even today as we talk, I hope that this, you know, going out to people will help people to recognize perhaps their own signs and symptoms of stress and reach out if they need support. Right. So a lot of it is about normalizing and validating for for others to let them know. And that's been true in so many cultures I've worked with. One of the things that I was shown working abroad was the value of a lay counselor. So now this is a person who doesn't have a background, experience, education in counseling or mental health, yet they can show up for that person. Mm-hmm. The, the simple being, letting someone know they are heard, they're understood, the power of that relationship to me is just incredible. To let somebody know, to remind them they're not alone with their pain, I mean, it's huge. And so in my work, we use a lot of psychoeducation, really helping people understand our, our fear and response system in the human body, you know, and it helps them to, to know they're not going crazy. Like I, when I think about this, I always think of this one example in Indonesia. So there had been an earthquake, a very severe earthquake on the island of Java. And I arrived with my, the mental health team. And the first day we were approached, a woman came and said, You know, please, can you come and meet with my sister? She has been not eating, not sleeping, not talking for several days. The earthquake was, this is probably day four following an earthquake. I said, Of course. So we go over with an interpreter. I sit next to this woman. She's underneath a tree and she's just kind of rocking back and forth. And I asked, with the interpreter, you know, would you like to speak with me? She says, yes. And she, she proceeds to tell me that she thought she thinks she's losing her mind. She thinks she's gone crazy. And when I just talk to her a little bit more, the bottom line is she is fearful to return to her home. And that's why she thinks she's losing her mind. I'm like, I'm sitting there like the aftershocks are severe (laughs) still. And I'm looking at all the buildings around me. They are all about to crumble. So just, just acknowledging to her, you know what? No, this is a normal reaction. I'm not going in your house right now. And I'm telling you, Sharon, she stood up within 20 minutes. She stood up. She said, thank you very much. I'm really hungry. I'm going to go now <laughs> and find my sister. And I was just in shock of the power of, just that, of just normalizing yeah. what a person is feeling.
0: I think that's very true. You remind me of um, uh, the first time I, through the Garrison Institute, was working with domestic violence shelter workers. And, and so that was you know the issue of, well, for many, a history of trauma and, and the vicarious trauma of dealing with the tremendous suffering that they were facing all the time. And Somebody gave a um really a lecture on uh the nervous system and the effect of kind of chronic stress on the nervous system and uh you know what vicarious trauma was and the and the manifestations of it and I think the best definition I've heard of trauma i don't know who said it it was something like it's a normal reaction to an abnormal situation yep and. Yep of all the uh, items, all the elements of that first retreat we had for people, all of which were available to people afterwards, you know, the guided movement, meditation, the guided sitting meditation, everything. Um, The one thing they, they wanted more than anything was that, was that lecture Hmm. was just to hear again, you know, this happens. This is, this is not because you're weak or weird, this is because you care actually.
1: Exactly. Well, it, and if you think about it like with COVID-19 right now, I mean generally, yeah, our fear response system, we defeat whatever it is, right? If it's a a predator, we hide until they leave or if it's a fight, we win and, you know, or we run away from the avalanche, whatever it is. But now with COVID-19, that's not possible. Right? We can't really fight this invisible threat. And so people are kind of just that just to acknowledge that there's a constant arousal state happening Mm -hmm. and just to be aware of that is so helpful, so helpful for people.
0: What do you find really helps resource people, you know, so that they feel kind of more geared toward the possibility of resilience and and, actualizing that i
1: think again if, if they they feel heard and they understand what's happening so we use like i use a framework in the field that kind of breaks down those signs of stress mm-hmm. and helping people self-identify so there's kind of five areas that somebody would see it be physical right so headaches and backaches yeah racing heart there's emotional So that's your crying and sadness, despair. There's cognitive. So people who are struggling to make decisions or their concentration is off or, yeah, repetitive thinking, behavioral, right? So anger, irritability, blaming others, drug and alcohol use would be in here. And then spiritual. So like this emptiness or loss of hope, loss of meaning, loss of doubt, and really helping people to. To look at those five areas and see where are you, you know, where do you fall? Are you having some of these symptoms? Is this what's happening? It really just gives them a sense of control that they know what's happening and that they have some ability to work with it, right? To um, address what's happening. A lot of people too, they they don't know their strengths. Sometimes it's as simple as reminding someone what have you used in the past? What was helpful for you before? You know, what was the last stress you've had? And then really, Oh oh, yeah, I, I, I lost my mother when I was whatever. it's like, Oh, okay. And what helped you then? Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. And then they're like, Oh, okay. So sometimes it can be what seemingly simple um, but not, but yeah, really just helping people to acknowledge and realize what, what they already know.
0: hmm When I worked through the Garrison Institute with domestic violence shelter workers, um, there was a model that I kind of picked up and, and have later used in, in several other contexts where, um, people either as a journaling exercise or as a reflection, uh, first of all, if you're doing it with a workplace as we were with, with the shelters. It was an interesting uh, first column, which was what's a really big source of stress at work, or maybe in your life if if that's not a relevant question. And, and that was kind of interesting for people because sometimes it wasn't even the, you know, horrible suffering they were working in the midst of or, seemingly intractable system. It was like bad communication with a colleague. (laughs) That's what was really bringing them down. And then in the second column, we asked people to consider if they were writing or or just to think about exactly what you're just talking about. Like, what do you do to lift your spirits or get a break or have a sense of rest or, or recharging or something like that? And people would write down a whole variety of different things. And then in the next column, the last column, we said, how about if you look back at this thing, this list you just wrote down and make a note about how you feel about each item. You know, if it was like, I drink a lot, then sometimes people would say, I'm actually worried about that. Or Mm -hmm. um, I think in four years, every single person, every single time wrote down something like listen to music and often Get out in nature. And once, this wasn't with domestic violence shelter workers, this was with another group. Somebody literally wrote down in, in that middle column, I get out in nature. And then in the next column, they wrote, Well, of course I haven't done that in about seven years. <laughs> yep. So you think, Well, get on it, you know? Like-
1: exactly, exactly. Well, and I can tell you from the research at Doctors Without Borders, this mm-hmm. number has always shocked me when they did some research with our counselors they found that 60% 60% of the stress was coming from the organization mm-hmm. not mm-hmm. from the traumatic witnessing that they were doing in their jobs mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. so that's often what's happening with that absolutely
0: you know even before the pandemic struck people were saying uh there was an epidemic of loneliness that was popping up around the world and certainly in the States is one one place. And um, you think about how so many conditions have changed and some people have been isolating for almost a year uh, and others are at home with family, uh, sometimes with no space. Um, but even in hearing about loneliness before, in these sort of odd conditions, I kept thinking, well, it can't just be about numbers, you know, that if you're uh, looking at social connection and that sensibility, it must be, at least in part, a kind of inner sense. Because otherwise, you know, it's like if you're trying to help with a clinical condition of some kind and you hear about social interaction or, or social networks, that feeling of belonging. You know, it can't just be like, well, I only have two friends. Maybe it doesn't happen till you have eight or, you know, something like that. I think there must be some inner sense of being part of a whole that's also important.
1: Totally agree. I think I remember a number, I and I, this might be wrong, but it seems like there was like 40% of Americans live alone. And so, but yet that's not what loneliness is, right? It's not about living alone or not. It's about that connection. So I think you're spot on with that. And I think, I mean, right now, as we go into year two of this, I, I really, my heart breaks for many people because they, a lot of people were just hanging on, right? (laughs) Just like, okay, I can do this. I can do this. But now, you know, they've, they've, they're spent, they've done all they can do with the anxiety and the uncertainty. And, and now they're moving more towards resignation or helplessness or Yeah. Depression. And I, it's, and I, I really think about teenagers and young adults. If if you think about that from a developmental perspective, I mean, their whole goal is to individuate right (laughs) away from family, away from parents move towards their peers. And that was just boom, stolen, you know, so Mm -hmm. dating and driver's license and graduations and, travel and summer job, all of it just done, you know? And so I really, yeah, my heart really feels for that group. I did a, a an event on Discord, which is like a platform for younger adults. And there there was so many kind of messages coming in on the side panel in the chat about just how difficult it was to be at home with, with parents. And, you know, I mean, for many people, home is not a, a safe place. Right, if it's intimate partner violence, then they're thinking about okay, that close proximity with that volatile partner, or do they go to an overcrowded shelter, right, and risk the virus? So it's being cooped up with, with family, with especially if there's a history of violence, can be terrifying. Yeah, and I think uh, work and school and our friends—they've been lifelines for people, Mm -hmm. and now with the school closures, lockdown, and all this happening. That safe space is gone. So we're definitely seeing an increase in uh, family violence and child abuse.
0: And how are you counseling people? I'm sure it's very individual, but what resources are you trying to offer?
1: I think, I mean, there is, it's interesting because right now with COVID, the stigma of reaching out for mental health is actually lessened. (laughs)
0: That's that's, very
1: nice. Yeah, that's on the good side, is that more and more people, more people than ever are reaching out for support. But on the downside is there's not enough mental health providers. So what we're running into is wait lists or not enough affordable options to people. Right. So, I mean, again, I always go back to connection, and I know that resonates for you as well um, in your work, but that's. Trying to connect people to let them know, yes, you're struggling, but so is your neighbor down the street, so is the other person that you used to connect with at school, right? And trying to really reconnect people um, with each other, with peers, and people who could support them. I think that's that's our go-to, and we know that across the board, it doesn't matter if it's a crisis, a disaster, a critical incident one thing that we always know is the to determining how well you're going to fare with that is your level of social connectedness, right? So to, to really, to lower the fear, to lower the anxiety is to really hang on to other people. Um, and that's, that's the impact we're feeling certainly with COVID.
0: Do you feel a kind of, I mean, obviously here too, everyone is individual and different, but sometimes I feel almost a kind of collective wave, you know, like, uh, You know, I feel like we moved in some ways in general from anxiety to grief, to anger, um, to exhaustion. Yes. And I'm sort of watching to see what emerges now.
1: Well, you know, I, I almost look at it like the grief cycle. Okay, if you know, yeah, Kubler-Ross's grief cycle. That's what it's felt like with COVID. Like initially we kind of had this shock of what, you know, this is... We're a modern country. What the hell? You know, what's happening? <laughs> and then moving more into the that anger of, no, 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 this can't be happening. You know, I'm not up for this. And then a little bargaining in there, right? And so, yeah, I think, but on that last step, that acceptance, I don't think we've quite gotten there. We are, we've moved towards exhaustion. I would agree. Many people have been holding out thinking, okay, I can do this for another month. I can do this until, of course, 2021, Right. That was what we were all kind of, yeah, 2021. And then the calendar flipped and it was like, oh, wait, (laughs) everything's still here. So, yeah.
0: It's funny because it was just Tibetan New Year.
1: Oh, really? Yeah.
0: yeah, So I thought, all right, we'll give it one more shot. Maybe that's it. Maybe that's the one. (laughs) Maybe this is the one.
1: (laughs) everything's going to be different by tomorrow. Maybe it's, and maybe we're, okay, I'm still hanging out. Mercury retrograde. Okay. Maybe the 20th,
0: that'll do it. Yeah. The 20th (laughs) will be better than now. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. Um, That's so funny. So how much, you know, when you're engaging with a person, do you try to offer them tools like contemplative tools or uh, breathing or physical movement?
1: Oh, I think uh, always interventions and my, you know, my go to is breathing, you know, and I know you've talked about this, but the idea that it's, we always have it, it's right there and it's, it will physiologically restart the body, right? It's, it calms our heart. It calms that parasympathetic, goes to the parasympathetic system and lets it relax, And so to me, and I've seen that, I've witnessed that work in so many cultures with so many people. And it's interesting, working abroad, often, many other places, people are more in touch with their body than we are here in the US. And so that's, for me, that's a go to another is certainly grounding, right, of just reconnecting with the body or the space that you're in. Just even just to, even if I'm having a zoom meeting, just to have people pause, look away from the screen, look outside, remember where you are. So, I mean, these sound like, like basic tools, but I have seen that these, these are the ones that work, man. Yes, of course, there are intensive modalities and ways of working with intense trauma and, you know, different techniques, but. Those go-tos of breathing, of grounding, of gratitude. I mean, those are those are huge. And they're effective with so many
0: people. Let's talk about gratitude for a few moments because um, it's the kind of quality of the heart that I think can often have a lot of different interpretations in terms of its consequence. And so much of the sort of the cynical view of gratitude is that it makes you satisfied with crumbs, you know, like you lose (laughs) all intensity to insist on a better life for yourself or a better world for, for the world. And, uh, and yet I think it's not at all. So, and I don't think even science is showing us that it's so, I think it actually is a really strengthening agent.
1: Oh, I think it's a powerful tool. Again, if you just look at that, You know, our response system, our fear response system in the body. I mean, that's what we evolutionarily, that's what we're doing. We're always looking for threats and it's important for our survival that we, we know that that tiger was around that corner last night because tonight we got to remember not to go to that corner. Right. So we're always scanning for that, that negativity or those threats. So by practicing gratitude every day, it truly is retraining the brain to look for the positive things, the things that are going to move us forward. I mean, it's, to me, it's an incredible way to really just shift our entire way of being. And I mean, yeah, like you said, the research is showing, I mean, the benefits are more satisfaction with life, better physical health, better sleep, less fatigue. I mean, it just goes on. Um, Yeah patience, wisdom. It's incredible what it can give us.
0: And I think even if one is experiencing quite profound grief, whether it's for a person or for what life used to be or what we sort of expected it to be, you know, in in this month of 2021, and it's really different. um, There is a lot of grief that seems natural and inevitable. And yet someone had written somewhere that, Grief is love that doesn't have the normal place to land. And sometimes I think Hmm. what we also need to do is is remember that, you know, and remember the love just as with gratitude, as things are maybe going quite severely wrong in a lot of ways in life. um, There is that which is upholding us or helping us or reminding us of the good as well.
1: And that, yeah, and that, uh, I'm going to say like grief, it's a normal response to loss. Mm-hmm. That's that's all it is. And that's what life is out here. There's, there's a tremendous amount of loss, especially right now. My goodness, we have loss of certainty, loss of structure and routine, loss of safety, loss of space stability right i mean loss of hope loss of connection loss of meaning there's so much loss going on and i don't think it's being acknowledged i don't think people are really people look at oh loss of life because we're having a virus or a loss of job right but there's just so many levels of loss happening with this last year um even our coping mechanisms, right? We, we're not going to the gym. We're not going to places of worship, to meditation centers. We're not traveling. We're not going to the bar. We're not eating out. You know, it's those are all losses that we're that we're having. Yeah.
0: Well, let's talk about resilience and what you have found in, and what you offer uh, to those in in some kind of uh, professional relationship with you. Um, for, let's start with individuals, then we'll move on to cultures, you know, or groups, organizations. Um, how do you define resilience and, and how can people cultivate it?
1: I think, I mean, I define it very simply as the ability to bounce back after stress and to be kind of minimally disturbed by any amount of stress or a given amount of stress. So it's that kind of that ability to cope in a healthy manner, maintain our mental or psychological functioning despite adversity that's happening. But I also remember, I remember late last year, I think Ariana Huffington wrote an article and it was like the word of the year, right? For 2020 is resilience. (laughs) And in that article, she talked about it's not just bouncing back, but bouncing forward. And I love that. I love the idea of that, right? That, and it, it, what it shows is just for us to cultivate resilience. It's not some big, mm, far off thing. It's, it really is through healthy lifestyle. Right. Through sleep, through social connection, through gratitude again, right? Exercise. I mean, these are the things that are going to cultivate our resilience. And even at the top of that list, I would put loving kindness practice, right? The work that you do, Sharon. Absolutely. To give ourselves compassion, to remind ourselves we're not alone, right? And we have emotions, we have pain, we have stress. And that's, that's okay yeah
0: that's wonderful and and i'm I'm so glad to hear you say that the sort of stigma of seeking help seems less and mm-hmm. and that people are understanding more because something uh now shifting to organizations you know something I found often um starting with the domestic violence shelter workers, moving to international humanitarian aid workers back to frontline medical personnel, you know, is often a feeling of I'm a giver, I'm a helper. Mm-hmm. It's not that cool to need some help or, or to um, feel like cultivating self-compassion is not going to be a selfish act or taking a break is not self-centered and, to understand that there has to be a kind of mutuality almost at some point, or, or there won't actually be resilience and to have a culture within an organization that more appreciates that seems a very intriguing need.
1: Oh my goodness. Yes. I mean, healthcare workers, international aid workers. I mean, the, the culture, yeah, you are the helper. You do not need help. Right. And to seek help is weak. So that, that's still all there. It's getting better. It's getting less, but it's absolutely there. So being, being sad or being impacted by what's happening around you is, is seen as, as not okay. Um, and it's, you know, it, there's a sense of, uh, failure even, right? Of I should be able to do better. So if, if people right now in the U.S. hospitals are dying, There's healthcare providers who are like, I should have been able to save that person. I should have been able to, right? And we see that um, with each other even. It's like, oh, if if Sharon's here and she's managing and I'm not, then what's wrong with me, right? So there's that comparison that comes in. Yeah, there's so many different things. This morning, I actually was reminded by a meditation teacher named Kiki, that today, February 18th, is Audre Lorde's birthday. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and Audre Lorde, black, lesbian, poet, writer, and she, she has the most wonderful quote, right, about that caring for the self is not self-indulgent. It is self-preservation and an act of political warfare. Mm-hmm. And I love that because we really need to come back to that. If you're not taking care of self, then at some point you will be unable to be of service to others so i think it's important in both the healthcare humanitarian aid world wherever that we that we keep that really close
0: that's fantastic and we didn't actually really discuss this beforehand but i wondered uh you know as we're coming toward the end of the conversation if you would like to lead us in a Short practice of some kind.
1: I would love to do that. Um, I'm actually thinking of containment is one of my go-tos. And so I since we haven't talked about this yet, but um, Peter Levine is a clinical psychologist, author, and he's the founder of kind of a method of body-oriented approaches known as somatic experiencing. So if people are interested, they can certainly find more, but it's, it's helpful to deal with trauma and stress. So one of the things he does is called containment. And his mindset is, it's not that we're overwhelmed by emotion. It's that we actually don't have a large enough container for our emotion, which for me fits so perfectly. Yeah. So if people want to just, Sit back for a moment and just kind of notice your overall experience, just breathing normally. Maybe move your feet on the floor, kind of moving and shifting until you feel connected to the floor. Feel your back and your bottom on the chair. Kind of ask yourself, are you perching or are you allowing the chair to support you? I want you to just look around. And I mean look around three hundred and sixty degrees. Look up behind you and notice something that feels resourceful. Maybe it's a tree outside the window, a piece of art. Your pet, a calming color. So the use of touch can intervene with the nervous system. And this can include self-touch. So that's what we're going to do now. So I want everyone to take your right hand and place it just below your left armpit, holding the side of the chest. This is where the heart is. Now place your left hand on your right bicep or your shoulder or elbow. We'll just take a couple minutes here to really notice the feeling under your hands. Does the body feel warm? Is the fabric of your shirt smooth or scratchy? Can you feel your heartbeat? You can even rock a little bit here, just rocking back and forth. Consider if, are you experiencing a sense of containment from your arms and your hands? Notice how the rest of your body experiences this soothing and containing touch. Take a few more breaths here. Now you can slowly release your arms and your hands. and return to Sharon and
0: I. Well, thank you so much for that. Um, I can just feel contained in this (laughs) structureless day, you know, (laughs) after day existence. Um, And thank you so much for joining me today. To learn more about Karen's work, you can visit karenstuart.org dot org. A big thank you to everybody listening. This has been the Meta Hour podcast from the Be Here Now Network. May you be safe, be happy, be healthy, and live with ease. Hey folks, thanks for listening. To learn more about Sharon and her ongoing teaching schedule, as well as online courses and a free guided meditation, Check out her website at sharonsalzburg.com